Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. Verse 10. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Wow. So God sent this prophet to the children of Israel, and he's reminding them of all he did for them, and yet they simply have turned their backs on him. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites. That doesn't mean there are actual gods who would answer their prayers and do miracles for them. They would worship idols. They would take a stone or a piece of wood, and with one chunk of wood, they'd cook their lunch, God says in Isaiah, and with the other chunk, they make an idol and bow down and pray to it. And God says, can that idol do anything? Can it stand up? Can it walk? Can it hear? Can it talk? Can't do anything. So men disobey God, and when it all comes down upon their heads, they cry out and ask, why? Well, why do you think? If you poison the well you drink from, if you spurn the God who gave you life and offers you salvation, if you ignore his counsel and prefer that of men, then we will suffer if we do those things. And we will not be able to predict the nature of our shame when we disobey God. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. And there you have the correct spelling of that name. Ophrah, that was misspelled on the birth certificate of someone who became very famous. In the events in Scripture, when we meet the angel of the Lord, angel means messenger. And God the Son is the express image of the Father. He's the mediator, the messenger of the Father. And so it's possible that a messenger or angel of the Lord is God himself. And at other times, it's possible that it might be an angel. However, often it is God himself, God the Son, who is revealing the Father to us, who appears to men in the Old Testament, and possibly in the New also. Now, if the angel of the Lord receives worship in Scripture, then we know that he is God unless someone is reprimanded. When John, the Apostle John bows down before the angel, he's reprimanded. And he's told, don't do that. I am a created being just like you, only worship God. But when men bow down to worship Jesus Christ, they are not reprimanded because, of course, he is God the Son. And so translators will look at the context and when it's the angel of the Lord, if the context makes it clear that it's God, they'll use pronouns with a capital H when they refer to him to indicate their belief by interpretation that the angel of the Lord in that case is actually God. And it would typically be God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
And how is it that God came to select a form to indwell that looks like a man? Here, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. Now, did he come looking like uh, a leviathan or behemoth or a dragon? No, he came looking like a man. How is it that God so often chose that form to indwell a form that looks like a man with a head and chest, arms and legs, eyes and eyes that are windows to the soul? which unlike the animals, animals' eyes gaze downward. Our eyes have an upward heavenly gaze. God, actually, he didn't choose to appear in a form like a man. It was quite the opposite. God made man in his image, in his likeness. We were made in his image. So when he comes looking like a man, he's not copying us because he made us as copies of himself. And in Genesis, of course, there are two different words. God made man in his image and his likeness. Likeness means that we are sentient moral beings who have eternal spirits. That's being made in God's likeness. A tree doesn't have an eternal spirit. An animal has a soul, but not a spirit. They're not made in God's image and likeness. Now, spirit beings... Let's say the creatures around the throne. Those spirit beings, they could have an eternal spirit. I'm sure they do. But they may not be made in God's image. In other words, this form of a man. Some angels certainly are made in that image. But what God did, from what we can tell from Scripture, is that God created for himself an image that the Son would indwell. And God knew part of his plan that the Son would indwell this image so that he could better relate to his creatures. So when God made Adam and Eve, first he made Adam, then he goes down to talk to Adam. And then later, Adam and Eve, they sin, and God is walking through the cool of the garden. And Adam and Eve, they know he's there. They can hear his footsteps. They're hiding. They hear his voice. He's walking through the garden. Does he look like what? He looks like a man. Why is that? Because he has created this image and he indwelt this image just temporarily. This is 4,000 years before the incarnation. He indwelt it so that he could better relate and reveal himself to Adam. And to Eve. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you find God coming down to talk with Abraham. And he says, I'm going to go to Sodom to see what it's like. Now, people say, well, wouldn't he know? It says Jehovah. Wouldn't he know? Of course, God in heaven would know. All he, has, he could see everything happening at one time. But when God the Son came down and became flesh through Mary... In the incarnation, he didn't know everything. In fact, he said, I don't know when the second coming is. Only the Father in heaven knows. He said, men do not know, nor do the angels in heaven, nor does the Son, but only the Father. So he didn't know. And so God the Son has the ability to empty himself 
of knowledge and power, humble himself and come like a man. Well, he did that forever, permanently in the incarnation. But he also did it when he would come down to earth temporarily in the Old Testament. He'd come down and come in the form of a man. And then he would look with the eyes in that form and he would hear with the ears and speak with the mouth. And if he wanted to have x-ray vision and see through a tree, he could, but that's not necessarily what he wanted to do. He was coming in the form of a man. So he cries out to Adam, where are you? I know you're here somewhere. I know there's big trouble, but where are you? You're hiding. And so when Jehovah came to Abraham and said, I've heard what's going on in Sodom, but I'm going to go down to see for myself. As a human being, I'm going to go down and see. And I will assess the temptation, the sin, and I will render my judgment. And so in the New Testament, when we see God speaking of the creation of God, the first creation of God, I believe what that was, was even before God made the heaven and the earth, and this may only be the instance before, I believe God in his mind conceived of the form of a man, how he would make Adam and Eve. But he made that form for himself. It was his image. So the first thing he did was create that form that God the Son would eventually indwell. In that manner, and in that manner only, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults We'll take that verse and verses like it and say, see, Jesus Christ was created. But the Bible says that there was only one creator. There was no other. And that Jesus Christ created everything that was created. Pastor Miller mentioned Hebrews 1, 6. But when God again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Yeah, praise God. Jesus Christ is God. And he is worshipped. All right, let's continue back to our text. Judges 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So we meet Gideon. And what is this mighty man of valor doing? Well, he's hiding from his enemies. Normally, you would thresh wheat on the threshing floor located somewhere near your fields. But that would be out in the open. And so Gideon is not at a threshing floor, but he's working in a wine press. The wine press in Jerusalem at Golgotha, at Christ's tomb, is located next to a cliff by a tomb that was carved out of solid rock in a garden of trees. And that would be a good place to hide as compared to being out in a field on a threshing floor. So the story introduces Gideon as he is trying to survive by hiding from his enemies. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon thinks, who are you talking to? It can't be me. I'm hiding. You mighty man of valor. But God looks at the heart and he sees what he can do through us if only 
we will trust Him. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Where are all those miracles we've heard about? Miracles do not produce faith as their primary effect. More than anything else, they increase doubt and unbelief. Jesus said that if an unbeliever sees someone rise from the dead, he will not believe. How many times has an atheist said, if I see a miracle, then I'll believe. And Jesus said, that is not true. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come from sight. The last time I heard an unbeliever say all they needed was to see a miracle was when a new friend said that to me back in May. A friend over dinner said, if I see a miracle, that's it, I'll believe. And so I shared with him what I typically do. Luke 16, Jesus said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We read in the book of Hebrews. Verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And of course, Gideon is thinking, Me? What can I do? I'm in hiding. But the might of his is the mighty one of the nations. It is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, So Gideon said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. That's true, Gideon. But God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Verse 16, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Scripture is filled with David and Goliath's stories, the small having victory over the great, the weak overcoming the powerful. The great war against evil culminates in the book of Revelation. And what is the banner of the victorious forces? They war against the serpent of old, the dragon and his legions of the underworld, the demons and the devil himself. And what is the banner of the victorious forces? It is a lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain. That's not what you would think of as the banner of the king and the victor. You wouldn't think of that. Not even the king of the forest. Not even an adult sheep. But the meekest of creatures, a lamb. And even at that, a lamb that was slain. For God's greatness is not, and here it's hard for me to overlook the Christian popular Calvinist worldview that says God's greatness is in his power, that he has all power and all knowledge. He knows everything and he's in control of everything. And so every wicked thing that happens, he makes it happen. And that shows his power. 
God's greatness is not in the quantity of his raw power, nor in the amount of his knowledge. But as Paul wrote, if we had all knowledge and had not love, we are nothing. But it is God's love, his willingness to share his honor and his power that makes him great. It is in weakness that God saves us. Humility in the might of his spirit. When God the Son became flesh and grew up literally in the womb of a woman and became vulnerable so that when there were people who wanted to kill him, God the Father had to protect him by sending an angel to Joseph saying, flee to Egypt because there are people who want to kill Jesus, my son. Now, when before that, in the history of eternity, did God the Father had to protect his son from being killed? Never. But that's the way God made himself vulnerable because of his love. The creator of the universe comes down and washes the feet. He humbles himself lowers himself and washes the feet of his disciples. Wow. That is God's majesty. That is his greatness. His power is awe-inspiring. It's amazing. His knowledge, his ability with the word of his mouth and the span of his hand to create the universe and the genetic code that operates all of life. And while those things inspire awe, they pale in comparison to his goodness and his love and his humility and his willingness to become a servant and to die for those who have turned against him so that he could save them. For it is in weakness that God saves us. Humility in the might of his spirit that confounds the powerful. Verse 17, then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And the angel said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat. That is a blood sacrifice, like on the day of atonement and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, and bread that does not decompose. Leaven is a symbol of sin. Christ's body laid in the tomb during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, yet his body did not decompose. It did not see corruption in fulfillment of the Scriptures. That is the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Christ is the bread from heaven, and even though he died and was laid in the tomb, he did not decay he did not decompose the meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them so the angel of the lord accepted the offering for this is a christophany god the son himself appearing to gideon and accepting the offering which is a form of worship the angel of god said to him take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock, and pour out the broth, and he did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. God requires a sacrifice so that he could enter into fellowship with man. And that's why this was so common throughout the Old Testament, the ongoing need for a sacrifice to point to that of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizrites. And these mentions give us an idea of the date of the book of Judges when it was written, for it was written after the last of the events described in the book and at a time when, as described in the very last verse of this book, in fact, if we look at the last verse, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that altar that Gideon built was still there afterward. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When people say, well, you got to do what you think is right, warn them. Say, don't ever say that again. No, you're wrong. You don't have to do what you think is right. Hitler did what he thought was right. You have to find out what is right and do that. And that's not too difficult. You humble yourself. You go to God's word. You find out what is right and you do that. So Judges is an ancient book written more than 3,000 years ago before the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as king. Verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, And tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And this is really radical. This is like of Ken Scott type activity. This is going to the center of town and imagine defacing an idol today and intensify that back then. Verse 26. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image, which you shall cut down. That is so funny. Cut down their God and set it on fire. Their God is their idol. They pray to it, the wood. Well, use it, burn it as fuel to offer a sacrifice to me, the real God. Verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. But at least he did it. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. But at least he did it. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, 
has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal. These are Jews. Imagine this. These are Jews who are to worship the God of Abraham and not build idols. They had the Ten Commandments from Moses. It was in the Ark of the Covenant. But they wanted to kill Gideon because he tore down one of their idols and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead? Well, by the way, that wooden image that was beside it, that was very possibly an Asherah pole. They worship Baal and Asherah, the fertility goddess. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. That's a pretty good argument to try to save your son's hide. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerobel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizrites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon and Naphtali, three other tribes. We're talking about the half tribe of Manasseh and men from these three other tribes. And they came up to meet them. Verse 36. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. God is so merciful, so patient. He's putting up with so much doubt. And it has to be disheartening to God. But who's he going to work with? He's stuck with us. Sadly, he went to the disciples. He's stuck with Peter and James and John. They're arguing about who's going to get the best seat. You know, Peter is acting like he would die for Christ. And then he denies that he even knows him. So God is working with us, and it's quite the challenge. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. He knew he was pushing it, right? Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only, on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So the story continues, and Lord willing, we will continue with it in our next class. But I think it's very unwise of Christians to read this and think, oh, this is how I'm going to operate. When i got to make a decision, I'm going to put a fleece out before the Lord. And I'm going to say, God, if you want me to go to work today, let the price of gas be under $3 a gallon. And if it's over $3 a gallon, I'll know you want me to stay home. 
It's immaturity. It was immaturity for Gideon to do it. God put up with him. God put up with the Israelites in countless ways. We don't want to mimic their lack of trust and faith in God. We want to do the opposite. We want to grow and benefit from their experiences. So I strongly recommend that Christians not put a fleece out before the Lord and say, well, if I call and she's nice to me, I'll ask her to marry me. And if she's a little annoyed because I was late to pick her up, then I'll know I have to forget about her. God, you give me the answer. That's not spirituality. That's superstition. Dressed up to look like Christianity. But it's just not. May God bless you all.